Good morning. So glad to be here. Um, feels a little bit like a holy moment. Like you, you hear those words and you recognize um, what a privilege and a joy it is to be in the very presence of God. That he would make it a, a possibility for us. And so um, as we open in prayer, um, just let's slow down a little bit. And press the brakes in our mind that kind of have us spinning out, thinking of what's next. And let's just be still in the presence of God and know that he's Lord over all. So I'm going to pray for us. If you can, find a very humble posture. Take a knee uh, or whatever it might be. But let's just uh, open our hearts to what the Spirit wants to do this morning. So Father... um, We come before you just humble, ready to receive, ready to be broken, ready to be um, poured out in service for you. As we open your word, just, just move us to understand the weight of it over our lives, over our conduct, over our thinking, And just move us, Lord Jesus, into a place uh, like David talks about, a willing spirit to be granted to him. So give us a willing spirit to hear your word, to carry your word out. Um, For myself, I pray just a a busy morning, my mind is racing and I've had lots of things. And I just, Father, I I just give all that to you. First Peter's clear that you love us. And we can give our cares and concerns to you because you care for us. And so I do that. I just surrender those things this morning. Have your way. Uh, Move in our hearts for joy and progress in our faith this morning. Amen. All right, open to Psalm 73. Um, I didn't grab a page number, but flip to the middle of your Bible and then count backwards till you find 73. That's where we're going to be. So... Why don't we start here? Uh, we, we all want to be full in any number of ways. Um, what are some ways that you might like to be full? This is like crowd participation. Feel free to shout. I enjoy that. Food. Food. Anybody else? Joy. Joy. Holy, Spirit. Holy Spirit. Anybody else? Yeah, think about it. Like, when I say... Oh, we just had a family time and my heart was full. What am I communicating? Is there room for other distractions there? Is there room for other things to kind of crowd in and, and take precedence and move me off of that? No, when, when somebody is full, they are satisfied. Food, love, family. Think about career. I'm fulfilled in my career. I'm doing what I was made to do means something else isn't going to creep in and make you do um, or make you want another career. You're satisfied in that career. But see, the, the opposite is also true, that when you're not satisfied, you go looking for bigger portions or maybe different portions. I found this interesting just because food is like the first thing we think of when we think of portion or when we think of being full. And I thought... Um, A quick survey from 20 years ago 
A standard bagel was only three inches in diameter. How much, how, how much bigger do you think it is today? It's like twice. It's six inches in diameter. Or a standard muffin was, was only 1.5 ounces, just 210 calories 20 years ago. Now it's 500 calories. Or soda. The standard size 20 years ago just used to be 6.5 ounces. What do you think it is now? 20. Even pizza. Two slices used to just be 500 calories. Now it's 850. You see where I'm going with this. We are people who like, we have this insatiable desire for bigger, for better, for more, and we think it's going to serve us. In 2012, there was this study done, uh, and sticking on this idea of food and portions, where um, 52% of Americans actually thought uh, that doing their taxes was going to be easier than learning how to eat healthy, correct portions. Isn't that funny? Or, or listen to these stats that just kind of help us frame portions in general. One in four people um, eat some type of fast food every day. 25% of you in here will go through a drive through before you'll sit in your kitchen and cook. Americans consume 31% more packaged food than fresh. Or how about this one? The healthiness of our food decreases as the day goes on. So we're way more prone to start healthy in the morning. Many of us are like, oh yeah, totally, right? And by the time you get to dinner, you're like, whatever. I don't even care what I'm going to eat at this point. And 20% of all Americans' uh, meals, of all American meals, are, are eaten in the car. You, you see where I'm going with this, that overall, the, the trend is we want something fast, and we want something easy. And I guess this morning, what we need to understand is what is God's portion? What does it mean? The, the word portion in Hebrew actually has this idea of an allotment or an amount of something, like what's given. And God's portion has always been enough. Years ago, um, Rockefeller was asked, and he had quite a bit of money, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little more. Kind of the, the telltale sign of the human heart. I just need more. I just need more. But you see, it, one of the things we want to land on today is just this. When God is my portion, he leads me out of temporal pleasure and into eternal satisfaction. And it kind of goes along with, um, perhaps you've, you've heard this, in the 1640s, to, to unify the, the Church of England and the Church of Scotland, uh, the Westminster Catechism was penned. And many churches uh, will stand on the declarations in this catechism. It's awesome. And typically it gives like a question and a response uh, in terms of training the mind and the heart. And so most of us know that uh, it says, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Okay? Uh, I want to flip that just a little bit and think, um, God cannot be glorified as he ought to be if he's not enjoyed as he should be. So maybe just one question as we start here, 
And I really want you, I mean, maybe even write this down if you're like a note taker. Because we, we don't like to think this way, but do you enjoy God? And I want to be clear. I don't mean, do you enjoy learning a new truth about God to add to your repertoire? I don't mean making your knowledge bigger. I mean, do you enjoy God? Do you enjoy just being in his presence? Do you, do you find yourself able to go for a walk and have a conversation? Do you enjoy God? Do you enjoy him? Because most of us would probably answer that question with, sometimes... Or others might even say, I don't know that I'm allowed to. And then the question becomes, how is he to become your portion to lead you out of temporal pleasure and into eternal satisfaction if you don't enjoy him? So we're going to look at Psalm 73 this morning and we're going to read how Asaph, a worship leader in the nation of Israel, runs through that tension of like not being satisfied with God. And then the shift that happens in his heart and then the satisfaction that he finally rests on. So Psalm 73, he starts out here. Now Asaph is a hired minister, picture like a professional worship leader, right? Um, It would be crazy to think that Tim, as he's leading our team in worship this morning, be like, hey Tim, do you enjoy God? I don't know, it's more of a duty Right? Like, I want Tim to love God, to enjoy God, because the overflow of that comes out in how he leads his worship, right? And I would hope everybody on the team would be that way. This is Asaph. He's, this is what he's hired to do. He's penned about, I don't know, 11 to 14 psalms are attributed to him. And um, he was throughout the book of Kings and Chronicles. You'll see his name listed. Uh, he is a worship leader. And so he starts off with like, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Okay, he nails it. It, The most basic thing that we have to understand if we want to begin to grasp that God is our portion is God is good. And the next step is Asaph's like, but things are about to get real. (laughs) Like, I just want to let you know where I'm at. And he says this, but as for me, My feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Try reading that in a junior high Bible study and see if the boys don't just die laughing, right? Their bodies are fat and sleek. It just means that everything goes well and easy for them, right? It's just simple. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. See how this is moving right to their tongue? These are the people that then what's happening? They're seeing a conclusion in their lives. Everything's going well for me. I've got it all. It's my, it's, it's my doing, not anybody else's. And then really quickly, pride becomes their, their adornment. And they are miserable to be around because It's just, I'm amazing. Everything's working out on my behalf. Back up. And ultimately, it turns to this. Their mouths, they set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And here's where it comes to a crescendo. 
and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Like, look, God's not nothing to do with this. There is no God. That's the opposite of God being my portion, is that I supply everything for myself. And then you start to see Asaph's conclusion. Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. I mean, think of what he said in verses 4 through 11. Prosperity, no pangs until death, no trouble, pride is their necklace, hearts overflow, they scoff, they speak, they set their mouths against God. Everything is easy for the wicked. Do we not live in a time like that? You look at people, you look at the world around us, and you're like, golly, are you kidding me? It seems to go so easy for people who are so godless. And then you can see the wheels turning, right? Where, where are we going to be headed? Why in the world would I bother keeping myself pure? You see it in verses 12 through 15 where he says, real simply, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. And then verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Why are we keeping up with coming to church on a Sunday morning? Why am I still reading my Bible? Why why am I still sharing the gospel? Why am I still living for him when everything is going wrong? Or, conversely, when everything is going right for other people? Why stick with it? Can I just ask, have you or are you in that place? And just be honest. where you have this envious heart. I mean, Asaph says that here's a worship leader saying, I was envious. You're like, I'm not so sure I want you leading me in worship. (laughs) But Asaph gets honest with God and with us, thankfully, because it's recorded for us. And honestly, God, you're not managing things the way I'd like. Evil's prevailing. What are you doing? Are you just going to remain silent? You can real quickly move to a conclusion of accusation about God. And I guess overall, the question becomes for us just this real simple reality. What do I or we as a church need to be honest with God about? What bothers you that you're witnessing and experiencing and enduring day in and day out? What bothers you? What is it about wickedness? What form of wickedness that you're watching all around you? What just kind of gets you? And it's, it's really there. And I mean this like in a, in a questions, in a doubts, in a fears, in an anxieties sort of way. What gets you? Because Asaph models here, hey look, I had made the conclusion, I was envious of the wicked, everything did this. Like they don't have any pain in death, like they live all the way to the point of death and nothing's hard for them. And they keep increasing in riches, like they keep getting wealthy and it's like I'm doing things right, I'm managing my money, I'm tithing and things still stink. So he's just being honest. Are you? I'd encourage you, take a moment. 
Write that down. What do you need to be honest with God about? Because Asaph's about to turn a corner in verse 16. He says this, But when I thought about how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. That translation, wearisome, some, some of your Bibles that you're holding might actually say oppressive. Um, he's, he's essentially saying, this is like you're never going to get to the end of this pursuit. If you're trying to figure out how your faithfulness, how God's sovereignty, and how wickedness around you all meshes in one big melting pot, good luck. Not going to happen. There are not going to be things that you have full comprehension of. It's called faith for a reason. But look what he does. It says, It seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. And I would just say this, that worship provides perspective. For sure. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly by tears like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. We're not designed to fully comprehend all the tension that we experience on a regular basis. It'll wear you out thinking about it trying to solve it. And at some point, there just has to be this crisis of faith where you believe something over and against what you're seeing. This is what Asaph is saying. I am presently witnessing the the total advance of the wicked, but I know the one who is faithful from generations past, and I'm, I'm gonna set that belief on top of what I'm experiencing. Okay, uh, so what does that look like? How does that get played out? Well, I think there are three things that we see happening in the text in verses 16 and then 17 through 20 and then in 21 and 22. In the first one, in verse 16, he just says it's wearisome. Like, he can't manage that reality. Raise your hand if you're someone who finds it hard to open up to other people about things you can't control. There's like, Eight truthful people in here. Uh, seriously, it is hard for us to confess, I can't manage this reality. I, I'm not doing well with the fact that wickedness is progressing, and I'm finding God less satisfying. That's a hard place to be, but it's a truthful one, right? So then worship brings perspective. Like, he just goes into the sanctuary of God, and, and he decides, like, hey, Their ultimate end, it says, when God rouses himself, it's like when somebody wakes up from a dream and he despises them as phantoms. And you're like, what does that really mean? Think about it this way. Have you ever been like knee deep in the middle of a dream that is so real, it's almost palpable? Maybe you're even sweating when you wake up. And then when you wake up, where's the dream? This is God and that is the wicked. That's what he's going to do when he's ready. Do you believe it? Because that's a powerful reality. You're like, well, you don't know what's happened to me this week. I don't need to. If the wicked are progressing, even if there's wickedness within your home that's progressing, 
God is calling us to see him as our portion. But look at what happens then. Asaph kind of gets to this point where he says, I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He's basically saying this. I made wrong conclusions about you and your character and your conduct. God, please forgive me. Notice, he doesn't say I never should have said it. This is the mistake we often make. We get to this place where we see these things playing out and then we're like, uh, I never should have said those things, God. Well, Asaph carefully didn't say things out loud in front of other people. It says, if I would have spoke thus, I would have denied the generation of your children. It means he's not just spewing his mouth off to anybody, but he is being honest with God. Have you ever been there? Because I I do want to say one thing that I think we can easily miss. Trusting or faith is not dismissing. Asaph lands in a place of faith, but he's not dismissing the realities of how the wicked are doing. He's not just skating past it. He's not blowing through it. He's not just saying, oh, well, uh, it didn't happen. No big deal. If I don't think about it, it, it doesn't bother me. Uh, he acknowledges the reality. He invites God in, and then he allows God to inform it, and it changes his perspective. Do you do that? Do you have an emotional response to something that happens? Do you invite the Lord into that and then listen to what his, um, the fruit of his spirit inside you is, is communicating, and then you walk out that reality in belief and faith and trust? Asaph's not ignoring the issues. He's not even pressing them to the margin. They're front and center for him, but he's moving from comparison to satisfaction. And I just want to say this, and and everyone in here needs to hear this. Comparison is the thief of joy. If you want joy, and we're going to get to how that wraps up, But if you want joy in the Lord, in the portion of himself that he's given you, you cannot be someone who compares. You cannot be someone who says, oh, well, look at this person. They have X, Y, or Z, and I only have M and N. You tell me one time that comparison worked out for you where you ended up being more joyful, more giving, more sacrificial, more gracious. Or did you end up being more cynical, more frustrated, more caustic? How does comparison typically work? Comparison works so that I can buoy myself up, I can make myself fear better, because I can look at you and I can say, well, I guess I don't have it as bad as that dude. And then I can be like, okay, well, I guess that's good, right? Well, what if that dude's lot finally changes, and then it stinks worse than yours? And you're like, oh, crud. Now i got to go find someone else to compare myself to. The tireless engagement of comparison will wear you out and it's horrible for your spiritual and emotional health. Horrible. I would even argue, and so would scripture, that it's sin. You cannot compare and arrive at a place of deeper trust in Jesus. And so this is what Asaph is modeling for us. So what were you just honest with God about and how can worship shift that perspective? 
Remember, you're not ignoring things. You're not brushing them on the rug. You're not dismissing. You're choosing to trust. God, I don't see how this is all going to play out. But right now, I'm going to choose to worship you by opening up your word and just being nourished by it. Or I'm going to choose to worship you and show up on a Sunday morning and sing my guts out in belief over and against my doubt, fears, anxieties, and lack of faith. That's what it looks like. And then he tells us in verses 23 through 28 what satisfaction looks like. He says this, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. And I love this verse. It's so powerful. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of your works. I want you to pay close attention. How does he move from the tension of everything stinks, everybody else is having a great experience and I'm not, to repentance, where he's like a brute, ignorant beast before God, to I am so deeply satisfied. I mean, look at how polar he sounds. By the end, there's nothing on earth or in heaven that I desire besides you, God. But at the beginning, he's like, I was envious of the wicked. I'm like, this is my guy. This is like totally me. I can totally get along with this dude because I'm there like a thousand times a week. This is me. This is you. And he moves that way. And and you can see it. I love the shift of pronouns throughout this passage. Just notice, in verses 4 through 12, you might want to take note of this and go back and look at it later. In verses 4 through 12, the the strongly emphasized pronoun is they and their. It's clearly an idea that he's focusing on the wicked. He's comparing. He's moving in that direction. He just, all he can think about is the wicked, just right there thinking. And then in verses 13 through 17, the pronouns shift to I and to me. And the focus is on self and then how he's doing in comparison to the wicked. And then in verse 18 through 22, Asaph begins to shift and think of God. And the dominant pronoun there is you. Like he just constantly says you, you, you. And then I love verse, uh, verses 23 through 28 because Asaph takes... Uh, the before pronoun of you in verses 18 through 22, and he joins his thinking about God with the presence of God, and he concludes this, nothing compares. And so the dominant pronouns in the last six verses of 23 through 28 is you and I. Love it. One author once said that God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. The only way we get to this place is when nothing or no one compares to our relationship with him. Listen, that is like the easiest thing to say, isn't it? It is so easy to say, God, nothing compares with you, right? Okay, now, what if you're in a struggling marriage for years? And your deep longing is just to be united with them, right? 
does God truly compare? Does nothing compare then? Or what if you're in a job that you're just grinding it out for year after year after year after year? You're never appreciated. You're never recognized. You're never promoted. You're never... Is he still your portion then? Because I would argue if he's not your portion when you're not getting a portion, he's not your portion at all. He's either your portion or he's not. He's either your allotment, your... your uh, fulfillment, your satisfaction, or he's not. Take the Apostle Paul. In Philippians 1, 20 through 26, he says this. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So pause right there. Paul's writing from prison with the eventual hope that he will get back to the church and the people that he planted in Acts 16 through 18. he's, He's under arrest and being watched continuously, and he's saying, God's gonna be honored in my life and in my death. And I'm like, uh... I know I don't experience that reality on a daily basis, those sorts of pressures, but look at his perspective. He says famously, and many of us would know this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. So here's a guy who says, I've evaluated everything. I've looked at every relationship. I've looked at what money can offer. I know what sex can bring. I know all these things. And guess what? Nothing compares to God. I want to die and be with him. That's not a fatalistic mindset. That's actually a proper perspective. That's what he's after. That's what I'm after. But why in the world when he's so adamant that like dying and being with Christ would be far better, he then turns and he says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary. Like, Paul, what are you doing? Why would you go back to hardship and to trial? Because he's surrendered everything. Nothing can be taken. He surrendered every, that's the trick, that's the key, that's the hack, whatever you want to call it. If you want God to be your portion, nothing else can be. Nothing. No relationship, no marriage, no child, no career, no fulfillment, no ephemeral pressure. Nothing can be greater than God. Nothing. And Paul's saying, look, it's more necessary that I remain. My desire to be with God notwithstanding, you need it more. Why? Because, and he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. And here it is, for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Look, the worth of Christ is so great that nothing compares. I want to go to him. That's what Paul's saying. However, a pressing matter is your progress and joy in the faith which also brings Christ much glory. I'm so satisfied in him that everything that that brings and promises can be put on hold because I want you to have greater joy and you to have greater growth in your faith. That's the ticket. He's everything. And I want you to end up with the same view that I have. 
I want you to be like so sold out for Jesus that you're like, yes, Lord, nothing else. I want other people to have progress and joy in their faith. And, and, and when you take me, great, like let's do it, game on. But like, it's more important that I'm here for you, for your progress and your joy in the faith. So what's your aim in life and community? When you think about your life group that you're involved with, when you think about those in your home that you see every day, the practical implication of finding all of our satisfaction in God is to live a life poured out toward others for their progress and joy in the faith. Because everything is surrendered, nothing can be taken. If everything is surrendered, nothing can be taken. We just want to hold that in our thinking that this is a journey. That's why the big idea that we're communicating is that when God is my portion, he leads me. Uh, have you ever tried to lead someone who doesn't want to be led? Like it's a little bit of a train wreck at times. Um, and you're, you feel like you're dragging them along. But look at what Asaph says after he gets going through everything. And then he says, nevertheless, you are, I am continually with you. Like notwithstanding my pride, notwithstanding my, my, my frustrations, you're still with me. And he leads us out of those temporal pleasures into eternal satisfaction. God's portion will always be enough. It's not going to grow over time. Um, he gives himself full access to you. Um, I just want you to be thinking along those lines. God, are you enough? What do I need to be honest with you about? So Father... Walk with us now as we worship. Um, open our hearts to be honest with you and move us toward deeper reliance on you. Amen.